We continue our Echo series with the fifth commandment. Deuteronomy 5.17 gives us that commandment. It says, you shall not murder. And this is God's word. The series that we've been looking at on the Ten Commandments is um, one in a multi-part series that is supposed to give us the six most important doctrines of the Christian faith. Those six chief parts are what you need to know if you want to be a Christian. We've been reminding ourselves that they are the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. This series focuses right now on the Ten Commandments. And as you can tell, we've gone through four of them already, but it's always good to review. So let's look back on those ten commandments, or five, four commandments that we've already studied. The first is not actually a commandment. It's a promise. The first thing that God said when he gives us the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It is a statement of unconditional election and gospel. That God says, I am not waiting for you to clean up your life or get in a little bit more line with these commandments. I choose you. You are mine. I set you free. And that gives a different flavor to the Ten Commandments as we study them. Because for many people, the Ten Commandments are the rules that God gives us to be good Christians or maybe to get right with God or to show ourselves to be faithful. God says that's not what the Ten Commandments are for. God flips every other system of thought on its head where every other system says do and be and live up and then you will get rewarded, you will get included, you will get affection. God says, no, you get affection, you get acknowledged, you get acceptance Now live according to my rules. And his rules are not there to bludgeon people or to uh, try to get them to behave a certain way so that God feels better about himself. It is so that we can be a blessing to one another. Like in my house, I don't teach my kids the rules of my house so that I can decide which one of my kids is the good kid and the bad kid. I give them the rules so that they can be a blessing to one another and to their mother and to society eventually. God does the same with us. You're in, he says. Now follow the rules in order to be a blessing to one another. The first of those rules was the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods, or we translated it, God is God and you are not. You do not get to call the shots. You do not get to be in charge. You do not get to set the agenda. God is God and you are not. And at first that is humbling because every one of us deep down wants to be God. In fact, the first temptation that Satan gave to humanity was you could be like God And we fell for it, and we've been falling for it for the thousands of years that have followed that moment. And yet God says, the first and most important commandment about me is that you shall have no other gods before me. Then he says, you should speak the truth about me. Doctrine matters. Don't take my name up in vain. Like, it's not okay to just say, well, what God says doesn't really matter, or whatever I feel is going to be okay. It's the truth. It has to be the truth. Because it's a salvation matter. Peter says that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, the name of God. So God says, use my name properly. Know what the scripture teaches and say it accurately. And you do that by making God's word a priority. Remembering the Sabbath day means to make God's word a priority, not just on Sunday, but every day of your life. That we would be constantly hearing it, not just from our pastor, but from devotional life, from other Christians in life groups. That God's word is the lifeblood that we draw upon to live spiritually. Then we transitioned to the second table of the law last week where we talked about authority. Where we said God designed us in specific ways on purpose. And he did that so that we would fit into a system of authority. Just like God himself is a system of authority where the father has authority over the son and the Holy Spirit. God says we created in his image are the same way. 
Some of us are men, some of us are women, some of us are young, some of us are old, some of us are children, some, are, some of us are adults, some of us are pastors, some of us are not. Some of us work in uh, systems of authority at our jobs, and some are under authority. And we would understand those things to be good things, right? This is what God is saying. We, of course, could say, it doesn't matter, I don't care. Every person should be the exact same, able to do all the same things, not have to submit to anybody. That's fine, but then you just reject the idea that God specifically, purposefully made you the way that he made you. And we know that that is not the case. We know that authority is a good thing. We found that out last week. And now we're on to the fifth commandment, which you heard is, you shall not murder. And uh, maybe you're hoping that I'm going to say, that seems pretty self-explanatory. Amen, let's pray, and we can get out of here by about 11.02. But I think this commandment does deserve some of our meditation. And if you remember back to the very first week we started on this Echo series, you'll remember that the reason is because the fifth commandment is the centerpiece of the Ten Commandments. We said it is the center, and in Hebrew thought, the center is the most important part. We don't think like this as Westerners. Westerners, we think the beginning or the end is the most important part. The first thing you say or the last thing you say is the most important thing. Hebrews didn't think that way. They thought the middle was the most important thing. And here we are at the middle, the fifth commandment where we see the intersection of God and humankind, where God says that no one's life should be taken because God made human beings in his own image. Therefore, you shall not murder. Now, we're going to talk about what it means to follow this man, but I think before we get there, we really have to talk about two ditches that we can fall into on the fifth commandment, two ways that we can get this wrong that at first, again, seem very obvious, and we might say, well, I don't actually fall into it that way, But as we look a little bit deeper down into the ditch, we can start to see ourselves on either side of the fifth commandment. So take out your note sheets and we're gonna walk through that first point, the two enemies of the fifth commandment. To start us off, I wanna ask you uh, this question. Which of these is more true, more correct? I have a body or I am my body. Which is correct? Take like five seconds, lean over to someone near you and tell, you'll tell them which one you think is correct. Unless you said both are correct, you're all wrong. <laughs> both are correct. Uh, it, it's hard for us because it is our natural inclination to think one of these two ways. But if we think one of these ways without thinking the other, we fall into one of the two ditches of the fifth commandment. So my hope is to show you each of these ditches. The first one is going to be uh, materialism. That's the first enemy of the fifth commandment, materialism. Materialism is a word we often hear uh, associated with greed, right? So if you've ever heard a, a pastor maybe talk about materialism, it's usually something like, our society is so obsessed with having stuff, right? We always want to get more things, more toys, a bigger house, a nicer car. That's materialism, and that's often how it's talked about. And that's not wrong, but that's just like a subset of what materialism is in a broader sense. Materialism is this idea that the only things that are really true, the only things that actually matter are things that you can see or touch. Or to say this really succinctly, matter is the only thing that matters. Matter is the only thing that matters. Materialism has no space for a god, the transcendent, angels and demons, any of this stuff that you can't put under a microscope and see or touch. This is materialism. Now, materialism shows itself to us in the fifth commandment by saying this, that the body is all that there is. 
right? They would agree with the statement, I am my body, but they would probably tag onto the end, I am my body and that's all I am. I am my body and that's all I am. You, of course, as a Christian, know that this is not the case. You know that you are more than just the collocation of atoms and cells that make up your body. You know that you are more than just chemical processes going on in your brains and in your organs in order to make processes happen that keep you alive. You know that God says that you are body and soul, that you have an immortal soul that God gave you, that gives you an inherent value beyond what your body is. But materialism doesn't think that way. Materialism says your body is all that there is. That's all that matters. This is the worldview, by the way, that comes from believing that the world is a cosmic accident. That is the product of an explosion of matter that has organized itself over billions of years to be what we see it to be today. You're nothing more than the product of monkeys having sex and dying for a couple billion years. The body is all that there is. So materialism's lie is this. But there is a such thing as a quality of life. You might hear this uh, used as uh, a measure of people, right? They have a high quality of life or they have a low quality of life. That is a materialist lie. It is a materialist lie. Let's examine it. Quality of life is essentially saying that some person's life is more worth living than someone else's life. And that could be based on socioeconomic status, that could be based on health, It could be based on family situation, whatever. But quality of life is an idea that inherently assumes that all that really matters about a person is their productivity or their happiness in this world. Are the chemical processes in their brain functioning the right way? Quality of life. It doesn't matter if you're rich. Excuse me, it does matter if you're rich or poor. It does matter if you're successful or a failure. It matters if you're old and decrepit or you're young and useless. All of it matters because to a materialist, what matters is matter. But you know that's not true. As a Christian, you know that regardless of how your body functions or fails to function, you have inherent value because of the soul that also lives within you. God has made you. And whether you're a doctor or a drug addict or have Down syndrome, whether you're you're old and, and can't remember your family members, or you're unborn and a seeming problem, You have value, inherent value. Materialism's lie is that there is a such thing as quality of life, and this leads to all sorts of abuses of God's fifth commandment. There's some really obvious ones. Materialism's lie would be that a life, if it is in the womb, and it's not going to have a good life when it comes out of the womb, is therefore less valuable and should be aborted. Or, that the quality of life of the mother carrying that child, her quality of life would go down because she would have to deal with this child and that would affect her emotions or her finances or whatever the case may be, and therefore, that child is less valuable and should be aborted. Or, for a person who might use in vitro fertilization, that their life would be better, their quality of life would increase if they had a child, and so they use a scientific process that creates multiple live children and then chooses one of them, usually the one that would have the best quality of life and lets the other ones die. Or the use of the the, uh, pill, which would allow a quality of life that would allow me to have sex whenever I want to without the consequences of a baby, not admitting the fact that the pill has the ability to allow a fetus to be um, 
uh, fertilized and yet not implant in the uterus of a mother and therefore die. It's quality of life. This also shows up in the obvious way of what we would call in this country medical assistance in dying. Made is usually what it's called. Our country has made it nearly as easy as it is in the Western world to end your own life. If you don't think you have good quality of life, if you're not happy, if you're not feeling good, you can just end it all. This is against what God says, right? If a person is losing their mind or their body is not functioning, their life does not become any less valuable. It should not be ended. God is the one who chooses when a person should die. But if we think of ourselves as only material, then we come to these conclusions. Now, before I move on, I want to pause for a second. I would love to examine all the different avenues and conversations we could have about abortion and euthanasia. But I'm going to say two things that are really important and really quick, just for the sake of time. First of all, these things are super complex. The, the choice to have an abortion or to end a life is not an easy or simple decision. That doesn't make it any less against God's law to do so. But we have to have compassion against, or for people who do this sort of thing. And that compassion ultimately ends also in, in Jesus' forgiveness. Like we've had, we have, excuse me, women in our congregation who have had abortions. Um, we have women in our congregation who have gone through IVF. Um, we have people in our congregation who have had to make the hard decision about whether it's time to pull the plug or not. And those are super hard decisions. And you might have regret about that. You might not be able to forgive yourself. God doesn't care. He forgives you. Right? Like If you're holding that against yourself, stop it. God doesn't hold it against you. God's gospel is that you are his, regardless of what you've done in your past. And I want, to, I want you to know, whether you have or have not gone through either of those things, that this is a place where, where people who go through that sort of stuff are welcome, because the gospel is for you. But you might step back and say, well, hold on, pastor. I've never had an abortion. Never even thought about it. Haven't done IVF. I haven't had to go through ending someone's life at the end of their life. What does this have to do with me? Materialism's lie for those of us who maybe have not dealt with those specific questions is, uh, I think, a forgetting that our body and our soul interact with one another. Like, we tend to sort of think that our spiritual life is in one compartment and our physical life is in another compartment. We tend to think that those two really don't interact. So if you haven't gone through those things, let me ask you a couple diagnosing questions. Have you ever thought that maybe how much you sleep can affect your spiritual life? Or what you eat could affect your spiritual life? Or how you exercise could affect your spiritual life? Or the substances that you put in your body could affect your spiritual life? Or the things you put in front of your eyes on a screen could affect your spiritual life? I mean, many of us don't. We sort of think that's a separate thing. But the Psalms and the Proverbs are clear. The body and the soul are inseparable. Those two interact with each other and are affected by each other. It is a subtle lie that many of us believe that we can do things with our body and have it not affect our soul. It's the materialist lie. So that's one ditch we can fall into, materialism. The second is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism is one of these big words, and very often I'll say to you, this is a big word and you don't need to know this big word. 
This is not one of those times. This is a big word, and I would really love for you to know this big word to be able to identify Gnosticism. Gnosticism is essentially the inverse of materialism. It's the inverse of materialism. Where materialism would say, I am my body, and that's all that I am. Gnosticism, on the other hand, would say, I have a body, but what's more important is my soul. I have a body, but what's more important is my soul. The term Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, and its basic tenets are this, two things that really make up Gnosticism. The first is that thing that I just said about the body and the soul being separate, that the soul is the real you and the body is sort of this house, this tent that you live in. The second is that because that is the case, because you are a body and a soul, but the soul is more important, what it really means to be a good Christian, a good person, is to invest in that soul, but to not really invest in the body. To let the body do its own thing, to live however you want to live, but what you do is you invest in the soul. This ignores what God says in his fifth commandment. Because it turns out that Gnosticism leads us to non-physical Christianity. That's what it leads us to. It leads us to a Christianity that separates us from the physical man, Jesus Christ, who came to this physical world in order to earn our salvation. And you continues to come to us in physical ways, baptism, the Lord's Supper, preached words which rattle your eardrums. Gnosticism is non-physical Christianity. Now, I realize this is a little bit new for you. Maybe you are somewhat familiar with materialism. Gnosticism is probably going to be a little bit harder, so let's take some more time and examine what it looks like in practical life. Three lies that Gnosticism tells you. Gnosticism will say, be yourself, not know yourself. Be yourself, not know yourself. Know yourself or know thyself is an ancient creed that people would say to encourage one another to see who they actually were and then try to fit themselves into society. So to give you a really basic example of this, I will not be an Olympic sprinter. There are a number of reasons for that and you can probably identify them right now. I'm not going to be an Olympic sprinter. I know myself. But be yourself is to say, it doesn't matter who you are or what you look like. You can be whatever you want to be. Just assert that you are this thing. Follow whatever you believe yourself to be. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or you're this ethnicity or that, or you're capable of this or incapable of that. Just be yourself. Do whatever you want to do. And you maybe can think of some examples of how this affects our society today. People who refuse to acknowledge what is on the outside and instead follow what is on the inside. Gnosticism secondarily says, feelings, not facts. Gnosticism wants you to believe that the highest form of truth is whatever you feel is true. So if you've ever heard the phrase, my truth or your truth, that's an example of this. There is one objective truth. My truth or your truth is an attempt to say, I don't feel good about the objective truth, so I'm going to go with whatever I feel like it should be. Gnosticism says that's okay. Because the true you is not the objective human that lives in the world, it's the soul, it's the spiritual, it's the what's going on after this life. This is a really interesting one to me because I think this maybe is the one that affects churches the most. Feelings, not facts. Um, if you ever had the experience of coming to church and not feeling good about it, 
Like maybe it's because the music was kind of off or the preaching didn't really hit you or you didn't sleep well the night before or maybe somebody said something or looked at you a weird way and you come here and you don't feel good. Does that make God any less present here? Does that make God's forgiveness any less valid? Does that make you any less of a child of God here? Well, objectively, no. The fact is, Jesus comes to you with his word to announce you are forgiven. He gives you his body and blood. You are forgiven, no matter how you feel about it today. But the unfortunate thing is, for many people, they go by their feelings. We've had people leave our church for no other reason than I didn't like how it felt. Or you can go to many churches today, and basically what they're offering you is good feelings, not the preaching of Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. Gnosticism says, follow your feelings not follow the facts. And thirdly, it says, knowledge, not action. So you got knowledge from the gnosis, right? That's where the word actually comes from. Essentially, what Gnosticism says to you is the most important thing is that you are growing in your mind, but that your body doesn't really matter in what it does. I think the most obvious place to see this is in politics today. Um, politics, Politics are obsessed with knowledge and not action. You can listen to a hundred different podcasts and watch a thousand different YouTube videos and learn so much about whatever the political issues are and then promptly do nothing about them. I'll give you an example, and this might hit a little bit close to home for some of you, but if you put up a Ukrainian flag somewhere but you don't do anything to actually help real Ukrainians, that's Gnosticism. It doesn't matter how much you know they're suffering or how much you know that the Russians are wrong. If you're not doing anything about it, it's Gnosticism. But this is what we're tempted to do, right? We're tempted tempted to maybe virtue signal is the way that sometimes people say it. To know that we're right, to remind ourselves that we're right, maybe find a group of people where we can all tell each other, hey, we're good because we're right, but not actually do anything about it. Not actually help real people who have real needs. This is Gnosticism. Our society went through an experiment in Gnosticism. You all lived through it. It was the COVID lockdown where the world essentially said, your body is unimportant for a little while. Shut it up at home, and everything you're going to do is, be, is going to be done with your mind. And we were reduced to Zoom calls, and text messages, and online worship, and everything shipped to our house by Amazon. And it's not that any of those things are inherently bad, but do you see what it was? It was an exercise in anti-physicality. It was an exercise in not being human. And I would just ask you to to consider for a while. For for a moment, if you're on more of the liberal side, like forget about how many lives were lost because of COVID. And if you're more on the conservative side, like forget about vaccine injuries and that sort of stuff. And just ask yourself as a whole, was that whole thing good for society or bad? It was bad for society. We didn't get better as people by locking down. You might think it was justified to do it, but it was not good for us. This is Gnosticism. It takes us out of our physical reality and says what really matters is what happens in my mind. And maybe you you find this even in your Christian life, personally. Like If you prefer doing things online to doing them in person, whether it's worship, whether it's Bible study, that's a temptation of Gnosticism. Like Real Christianity is lived out with other Christians. If you think that I interact with God in my own special way and I don't need a church or a pastor to hold me accountable to that, That's a temptation of Gnosticism. That's not living in a physical way with other Christians. 
And the list could go on of ways that this happens, but we have to identify this because it is God's temptation to throw away the image of God, which is us, body and soul, united. All of both. I have a body, and I am my body. Why does all this matter? Well, ultimately, it robs you of certainty. It robs you of certainty. Um, If you have a Gnostic faith, or you have a materialist faith, then you don't have a certainty that God has actually saved you. You have nothing to go back to that is actually tangible to prove that God loves you, God forgives you, you are his, you will be with him forever. But if you have the preached word from a real human who knows who you are, if you have the water and the word of your baptism that on a specific historic day said, God chooses you, If you have the bread and the wine, which are Jesus' physical body and blood, entering into your physical body and blood that assure you of your forgiveness, you can go back to real historical events and say, I am certain, I know that God loves me, that God chooses me, that I am his forever. Otherwise, I'm left with philosophizing and trying to figure it out for myself. Do I feel good about Jesus today? Do I I think I'm living a good life? What, What is it? Go back to those physical things. I have a body and I am my body. Both are true. So now that we've identified these two ditches that we can fall into, let's talk about the key. What does it take to follow this fifth commandment then if those two things are where we don't want to go? The key to the fifth commandment is Jesus. (laughs) It's knowing Jesus. Because in Jesus, God recreates humanity to be what he wanted it to be. God created the first humans in his image, perfect body and soul in, in, excuse me, in eternal communion with him. We, of course, threw it away by taking Satan's temptation to be God ourselves. But then God recreated humanity. God took all of humanity and reduced it down into one person and said, anyone who is in this one person is now righteous, is now back in communion with me. And that one person was Jesus Christ. And so let's look at Jesus. It'll help us to understand the fifth commandment. Uh, The first thing to understand is that Jesus is both God and man. We see this in this verse that we read from 1 John 3. It says that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You know, this is only possible if Jesus becomes a human. Jesus, in his eternal uh, presence at the right hand of God as the second person of the Trinity, could not die. He was immortal, he was God. But in order to die for you, he took on human flesh. He became just as human as you or I are so that he could lay down his life for you. He could give up his humanity in order to replace your humanity, the humanity that was corrupted by your sin with a humanity that was perfect in his righteousness. And so the first thing to know if we're going to understand the fifth commandment and how to follow it is that Jesus is both God and human. Only there do we start to see what God wants us to be. Uh, The second thing that we want to see is that because Jesus came as God and human for us, we are now set free and empowered to be both spiritual and human. Look at these verses. Uh, John says that anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So notice the connection here. He talks about a physical thing, hate and murder, and then connects it to an eternal reality. 
Right? He says those two things are connected. And he says a similar thing in 1 John 3, 17. He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Right? It connects the eternal reality of God's love in us to the working out of loving our neighbor with material possessions. He says both need to be true for us. That for us, spirit and body work together. That we understand that our Christianity is not just lived out in the abstract of figuring out God's love or thinking about eternity. Those things are important, but they are not the only thing that Christianity consists of. No, Christianity then is lived out in physical love for a neighbor. That I am with you. That I care about you that I use my physical ears to listen to your physical voice, that I take my hands and use what they're capable of doing to bless you. Spirit and body work together for all Christians. And then last, we have to see that God is pressing us into a progression. Uh, Look at these verses. John says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then he says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. God says it's one thing to just do the right thing. Right? That, that's what Cain was doing. He was doing the right thing in a sense. He brought an offering to God, if you remember the story from Genesis chapter 4. But his heart was not in it. His heart was not there to bless God with his offering. And so what God is saying through John to us is this. The first thing we think about when we think of the fifth commandment is, first of all, that we do no harm, right? That we would not hurt another person, that we do the right thing, so to speak. But then by the love of Jesus, he wants us to grow to this place where we start to actively pursue helping others. That we're not just keeping ourselves from hurting, but instead we are actively befriending and helping those who are in need. But then he wants to take us one step farther and say that we actually would help others at a cost to ourselves. This is what 1 John 3, 16 said, right? When Jesus laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So this is the progression that God wants us to have, to grow in understanding that the fifth commandment is not just telling us don't hurt somebody, but that by the love of Jesus, we would go from not just not hurting somebody to actually trying to help them, and then eventually trying to help them at cost to ourselves. So what does that look like? I think there are probably a hundred applications that you could make, and they're unique to you. You have your own vocations. You live in the neighborhoods you live in. You have the family you have. You have the friends that you have. You have the job that you have. You have the resources that you have. But here's what God is calling us to do, to see ourselves as human beings who have an eternal soul, which makes us empowered by his Holy Spirit to love all other human beings who also have inherent value. And to not just avoid hurting them, but to actively pursue helping them, even at cost to ourselves. This is how Jesus showed us what love is. He laid his life down for us. Now we also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to see our physical bodies as important, as the way that we live out our Christian faith, both towards you and towards our neighbor. Give us a heart of generosity that does not just try to avoid hurting, but also pursues helping, even at cost to ourselves. I ask that your Holy Spirit would come into every person here and direct them towards those in their life who need them. They may be in their own home, they may be in their neighborhood, they may be at their work. You know their lives. 
You know who needs you. And work through their hands, their feet, their mouths, their wallets to do whatever is needed to keep those lives uh, safe and to befriend them in all their needs. We ask that in your name. Amen.